Hello and welcome to Frankly Speaking with me, Lynn Franks and Friends. On today's episode, I'm speaking to Catherine Mayer, author, award-winning journalist and co-founder of the Women's Equality Party and the Prima Donna Festival. We'll also be with her mother, Anne Mayer Bird, the veteran arts PR. Just before the news of COVID-19 hit the world and global lockdowns became our new normal, both mother and daughter became widows within 41 days of each other. Catherine losing her husband, musician Andy Gill of the Gang of Four, and Anne losing her husband, John Bird. United in their losses, they have co-authored a beautifully moving book entitled Good Grief, in which they detail their story of survival during the hardship of losing their husbands so close together. Part personal and part practical, the book is ultimately about love. Love for their husbands and also their deep love for each other. We live in a society where death is just not discussed or talked about. So being able to speak so candidly with both Anne and Catherine was really very special for me. So how can we embrace life at a time of so much death? With spring and summer upon us, the world is re-emerging from the last rounds of lockdowns and winter. And I hope this conversation brings you a sense of love that is still possible and present after death. Welcome, huge, huge welcome to Catherine Mayer and her mother, Anne Mayer Bird. Uh, it is wonderful to have you here. I mean, it's a real gift to have you here. And we're going to be talking primarily about your book, your bestseller. See all my notes in there. Your bestseller, Good Grief, which is absolutely climbing up the charts. Well, it has climbed up the charts and it's been written about in lots of newspapers and magazines. I've heard you, Catherine, on lots of radio shows. Um, enormously important book. I've had this beautiful book with the two of you sitting on the sofa there um, on my table, ready for me to read for the last few weeks. And I pick it up and I think, oh, I'm not quite ready. And I put it down again. And I have read and immersed myself in it from cover to cover for the last few days. And it is it is such a gift, this book. Good Grief is the title, Embracing Life at a Time of Death. But it is a book about love. It is a beautiful book about love. It is a look about the love story between you and Andy, Andy Gill, your husband, who passed away. And then Anne, your husband, John Bird, passed away about 40 days before Andy. Yes. Um, so it's about your love story and your letters to John since he died in the book, which are just beautiful. And um, because you are such a eloquent, engaging writer, Catherine, it just draws, it drew me in immediately. It wasn't like I was sitting on the edge of this book, think, sort of peeking in at your life. It completely engaged me, not only because I know you, love you, think you're an extraordinary human being anyway, but the book really just, I felt wrapped up in it in a positive way. The love story also, I may say, between you and your sisters, your stepsisters, your extended family in every direction, your friends. I mean, you are surrounded and you talk about this at the end of the book, Anne, which we're going to come to, about the richness of your life and the love that's in your lives uh, in every direction. I think you're absolutely 
on point in describing it as a series of love stories. And I would also say, um, you know, with at the risk of being a bit schmaltzy, it's a love story between me and my mother too. Um, yes, I meant to say that one. <laughs> but um, we, what happened was that we were both very lucky uh, to have these um, relationships. We always knew we were lucky, um, you know, um, the moment I met Andy, literally the moment I met him, I kind of knew that I was going to be with him and there was never any messing about with it, no, never any game playing. You know, the, uh, I went, I went, I met him at a party the following Saturday. I went out to dinner with him and I was never separated from him after that moment. And I think with my mother and John, the beginnings of it are a little bit messier but but that same that same sort of sense of um it's it doesn't sound romantic in the way that people expect it to but a kind of solidity and security where you just know you're you are meant to be with that person um we both had and andy and john although in on the surface seemed very different um you know John was John was a businessman. Um, he came from a sort of different generation and different background. And Andy, of course, was this groundbreaking musician. Awesome. But actually, John John wanted to be a musician, became an artist, and was. And the thing that they also had really had in common was this utter lovability that they were sort of people of um, that that people just gravitated to both Andy and John. And of course they loved each other. So. And they loved our family. They loved our family and we really loved our family, which is, you know, and we're loved for some. (laughs) we're, We're loved by them. But so, I mean, we, I also would say that the relationships married each other in the sense that, you know, my, my mother has never stopped working. I can't ever imagine stopping working. And we were with men who, rather than being threatened by that, were, you know, appreciated that and were, were extremely supportive of that. But then the background to writing this book, of course, is um, John had been ill for a considerable time, but um, we didn't think that he was um, dying. And then in December of 2019, he was admitted to hospital. And around the same time, Andy had been on tour with his band, Gang of Four. And he um, came back from his tour. The last um, country of the tour was China. And he came back from the tour. and, And around that time, was when John went into hospital and um, suddenly declined quite fast and died on the 22nd of December. And so around that time when I was doing my best, as my mother will know, to support her and, and you know, my sisters and I sort of, you know, converged and, and um, sisters, I'm including my stepsister in this, we're collectively sisters we all took on different roles and we were going to do this. And I sort of, in a way, didn't realise how ill Andy himself was becoming around that time um, until he and I went on a long planned break at New Year. We went away for a couple of days. And while we were away, I suddenly realised that he was breathless in a way I'd never seen before. And, I mean, he had 
had asthma all his life and he had a an what they now always call an underlying condition. He had something called sarcoidosis, um, which affected his lungs, but it hadn't it hadn't been a bad or difficult thing. And suddenly he was really ill. And when we came back in January, he didn't want to go into hospital, was very resistant to getting medical attention because um, he wanted to keep touring and he had all these big music projects going on. He had an album, which I've in fact spent the last year getting ready to release. And, and so he thought that if people, if the outside world knew that he was ill, it might dis, it might sort of cause difficulties. It might deter people from booking him. So he, he kind of resisted going and seeking medical attention. And then one day I called the ambulance for him. He got taken to hospital. He um, was, told when he was um that his oxygen was dangerously low but he was told he was the healthiest person in intensive care and they expected him just to spend like a day there be stabilized and then be released and instead even though they were able then to identify a particular strain of pneumonia he had a whole series of things happened where everything went against the expectation of the doctors and he just um he he got worse and worse and then they put him into a coma and five days later they asked me to agree to them switching off life support. I only later came to realise and came to discuss with the hospital the um, probability that he was one of the first victims of COVID in this country, having been on tour in China. And at a later date, it became obvious that a lot of the symptoms and everything he exhibited were very COVID-like, um, which of course then raised questions about the speed of John's decline as well. And it meant that we were widowed within 41 days of each other and then, of course, locked down. So um, we went straight from fresh widowhood to losing the loves of our lives to being locked down. And at that point, I began to visit my mother once a week Um as a caregiver under those rules of caregiving, as you will see this evening, my mother is not, she doesn't fit people's preconceptions of a woman who needs care, but she'd never lived on her own before. There are some things she really doesn't know how to do and needs help with. And so even now I go every Sunday and do things. And while this was happening, um, long story short, she began writing letters to John to explain to him all the extraordinary and terrible things that had happened in the world since his death, including the death of Andy, including the pandemic, including lockdown, a world he wouldn't recognise, even though it was only a few, you know three months, a month or so, three yeah. months. And um, around that time when she'd shown me the first of these letters, my publisher came to me and said, why don't you write a memoir? Um and I had started, I blogged, but I blogged exactly, this is so weird, exactly the same day she wrote her first letter to John, I wrote a blog post. And the reason I wrote that blog post was because Andy was a public figure. And so there was a lot of interest in him. And I kind of counterintuitively did it to, pres to preserve my privacy, because everyone kept asking me, that dread question, and how are you? Yes, I made sure I didn't say tonight. <laughs> I know. And wanting, but also they wanted to know had he died of COVID, 
you know, why, why he'd suddenly died like that. And so rather than try and answer people individually, I wrote a very long blog post about what I thought at that time had happened. At that time, I was saying he didn't have COVID. But the point is that the publisher came to me and said, I should write a book. And I said, I don't want to write a book. It's way too early. But look at this, these amazing letters my mother is writing. And she went away, read them, came back and said, I really want to publish these letters. They're fantastic. But you need to write the book that wraps around these letters. And then at that point, I thought, oh, well, I'll see if I've got something to say. And it turned out that I had quite a lot to say. Um, but, But I always wanted the letters to come out. And I'm so glad that they have. They're beautiful, the letters, and I've, I've asked Anne if she'll read a little bit from them in a minute. If Just one of interleaving them. with that, I might say that I wrote to John because suddenly finding myself walled up in my house in March last year, it, I don't know why, I just thought I have to tell someone what's, what I'm going through, and who more logical to tell than John, to whom I told everything when he was alive. So... And I found after I wrote the first one that it was very, not cathartic, that's the wrong word, but I, it made me feel better, more connected, more sort of, I don't know. I loved writing to him. And so I then started writing. But going back on what Catherine said, three days after John died, it was Christmas 2019, and Catherine and Andy, who are the, well, he was and she is the outstanding cooks in our family, did Christmas dinner for the family. And I ended up sitting next to Andy. And I didn't say anything to Catherine at the time, but I thought, he is really not well. And I had been so wrapped up in my husband dying, I hadn't even thought about Andy. But I sat next to him during Christmas dinner, and I suddenly thought, this man is really, really, really not well. And I think that it really landed in my consciousness not that he was going to die, but that he was certainly not himself. Yeah. Um, this whole um, aspect of COVID, because you're a journalist, um, Catherine, a very good journalist, is a big, well, not a big part of the book, but there's a there's a substantial section here on what was going on generally with COVID, not purely what could have happened because Andy had been touring in China. And um, you did then go into a lot of research with his doctor's afterwards to try and track down if he did have COVID. Um, But also the general situation, which I thought was very informative um, and um, really very important, actually, looking in particularly in the UK at how people in care homes had been treated. You have a friend who runs one or works in one and, and, and the mistakes that were made over here. I mean, it's very easy to always blame everybody, but clearly we were very slow off the ball here and that's why a lot of things happened so um do you want to talk a little bit about that because you're a member of a facebook group as well aren't you people that the you talk COVID, about yeah the covid bereaved families for justice um yeah it's 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 interesting i mean i have to say when i realized that andy may have had covid it was only because at at the outset the timeline said that it couldn't be possible because at that point you know the idea was it was in Wuhan only and it was only discovered there in December and although he'd been in China he hadn't been in Wuhan and it supposedly hadn't come to Europe now there's an awful lot of evidence now that that is not true that it was here much earlier Um, and there's actual proof into not just evidence suggestive evidence but proof in terms of 
um, blood samples that were taken back in December of patients in hospitals that show either uh, COVID infection or COVID antibodies. So it is now it is now proven that those timelines were wrong. And when the first of that those stories began to break, I went to Andy's specialist and I just said to him, you'll think I'm mad, but do you think it's at all possible that Andy had had COVID? And the specialist completely winded me by replying that the hospital was in fact investigating that very thing and had been doing so for six weeks. And they thought he very well might have done Um, And they were trying to find the suitable samples for testing, which they were never able to do. But my my, um, feeling about this is the reason I pursued it. And it was interesting writing that part of the book because the rest of the book is so much, both the way my mother writes to John and the way I write is unfiltered and very personal. And the chapter on COVID is the one bit where I went back to my comfort zone as a journalist and kind of like, really? I can, I can like sit back. I can research this. this. Yes. Um, but, but why I was doing it and why it matters is it doesn't make any difference to me personally, whether Andy, what killed Andy, the, the fact is that Andy's dead and that's the thing I have to live with. But it does make a difference to the way that this situation is being handled and mishandled. And I felt compelled to document the ways in which it had been mishandled last year um, because it keeps meaning uh, and that there are avoidable deaths. And each one of those deaths is a personal tragedy for the person who dies and for this whole universe of people who love them. And so I joined the COVID bereaved families for justice who were asking for a public inquiry not to do the thing that public inquiries are so often used for, which is to kick the can down the road, but exactly the opposite, to learn useful lessons and implement them. So to have a rapid review phase. And also to um, another thing they campaign for is the appropriate kind of mental health support, because there are so many people out there grieving And you mentioned at the beginning that this is a culture that doesn't deal well with death, where people aren't prepared for it. And the kinds of deaths that are happening in the pandemic are not just ones that cause grief, but ones that cause trauma, because people have the person they love ripped away from them. They're not allowed to be at their bedsides. They're not allowed to commemorate them in ways that you would normally expect. And then, as my mother and I too well know, I mean, we don't get to, we're living on our own. We don't get to touch people. We don't even hug each other. The only times I've been touched during this pandemic, weirdly, have pretty much been people being hostile and angry. And the last time I got touched was somebody mugging me for my phone. And I read that on Facebook. That was, you know, but it, but it's a, it means yeah. that the kind of the universe we're in, there needs to be, lessons learned to prevent more deaths and there needs to be the kind of support I mean, we, as you can tell we're doing okay but we're lucky in all sorts of ways including being sustained by the great love that we had for Andy and John and that we have for each other but there are a lot of people who aren't that lucky. Back to a personal level both of you have experienced um, losing not only your yeah. beloved 
um, or as, as you refer to Andy all the time as the lovely dead in your fa- on your Facebook page, which the first time I saw that, I really, uh, it really obviously grabbed my heart and I see it referred to all the time as hashtag lovely dead and it's very beautiful. But you, you both, uh, I was, of Anne, reading your story, which is that uh, you, uh, you are American and uh, you lost your father at an early age at 12 and then your brother very early and... Um, um, so there was this kind of sadness that you grew up with as a, as a young woman, um, which affected you. I don't know if you want to share any of that. And then- well, I mean, it's just my father died of a coronary when I was 12 and he was only 41. Um, no warning as far as we knew. And my brother and I saw him die because it was a Sunday morning. We'd gone into our parents' bedroom to sort of bounce on the bed with them, as people often do. And my dad suddenly put his hand sort of on his chest and said to my mother, Ruth, I don't feel very well, and went over like a tree. He just went over and he lay there and we knew he was dead. It was the most extraordinary experience. And my mother was incredibly calm. She got us dressed and took us next door. And that afternoon she came over next door and said, I hate to tell you, your father is dead. And of course we knew it. We'd known it since 9.30 that morning. Two years later, my brother had been sent off to summer camp, which is a big American thing, you know, to send kids to camp. He was off in Wyoming having a wonderful time at a, a called Teton Valley Ranch. And the boys were having a barbecue and a thunderstorm came up very suddenly, as they do in the high mountains. If you're familiar with the Rockies or anywhere, you can get blue sky one minute and a thunderstorm the next. And the boys were running to a shelter that was somewhere, you know, and a big fork lightning just came down and that was that. So he was then 12 and I was 14. And, and it was almost two years to the very day that since my father had died. So my mother had to cope with this double tragedy and a very beastly teenage daughter who wasn't very nice to her, unlike my wonderful daughter who's supported me so brilliantly through this. I was not... I, I just wanted to be like everyone else, and I suddenly had half a family. You know, I'd had a mom and a dad and a brother, and suddenly I had a mother, period. And uh, and I feel very remorseful all these years later that I was just so unhelpful and unlovely to her. But I just sort of couldn't, I don't know, I found it very difficult to accept. Um and then I have any support. I mean, again, yeah. talking about support, it's like the two of you just somehow muddled through with that amount yeah. of loss. I mm. don't find it at all surprising that that you had a strained relationship. Yeah. But then many years later, she married a wonderful second husband whom I adored, and he died of Parkinson's. So I lost him too. So quite a lot of, you know, and then. In very recent years, as I'm sure Catherine will tell you too, we lost John's elder daughter Sarah. to ovarian cancer. We lost another member, someone that we were all very close to. Uh, and then we lost John and then we lost Andy all within about three years. Yeah. So, and, and for you, Anne, this is the first time in your whole life that you've actually lived alone. Ever. And this was... This was your big fear, as far as as I understand from the book. Yes. This was a huge fear for you to live on your own. And, and, and in fact, now we're in a world where lots and lots of people are living on their own because we can't go out. Um, and you're finding that it's, it's, it's not as 
terrible as you were imagining. And in some ways, you quite like your space. I've, I've grown to like my space and I've grown to like my own company, which is, was quite a change for me. And I, I am assisted not only by Catherine, but my bubble, our neighbors, and they have been extraordinarily um, kind. Um, if I say that the male half of my bubble was on my roof in the pouring rain today, putting a piece of lead flashing back, which had been blown off. I mean, there are things I just can't do and never will be able to do. I, I don't think going on the roof and putting on some lead flashing is a particularly recommendable thing for you to do any more than for any of us, I think. But, um, but yeah, so it's, it's interesting what comes out of situations. And, and Catherine, for you, um, of course, the loss of family, but uh, you were also very close friends with Paula Yates and um, Andy was working with Michael Hutchins and that was uh, very traumatic at the time. And um, you recently done one bit of work that you wrote about that you were doing is you've done a, uh, a present. What, what was it exactly? What, not a one woman show, but some kind of. Well, it, it was. Um, so what happened was uh, the Globe Theatre did a series of monologues about um, women who had been erased or misrepresented. And they asked me if I wanted to write and perform one. And I instantly thought of Paula Yates because, and and it's interesting because, of course, I mean, I met I met your daughter-in-law because she was working for, uh, she was not Paula and uh, your tiger's uh, godmother and yeah. Monique looking after her. Yeah, Monique was was looking after her and was one of those people who was there in the middle of the most traumatic circumstances possible at an impossibly young age and dealt with it incredibly well. But you know, it was my first real run-ins with grief were when Michael and then Paula died in in quick succession and we were very close friends of theirs and it it was a very odd one because the the outside world had so many preconceptions about both of them and ideas that dehumanized the whole grieving process because people were just interested to know about them and didn't see them as human or understand our relationships as being like true friendships and so it was odd and intrusive and so when I was given the chance um, 20 years after Paula's death to write a monologue about who she really was as opposed to how the world saw her I jumped at the chance but then I couldn't perform it because I, I had written it and and I you know got ready to perform it but um, it was the 29th of January that I was supposed to perform it at the Globe Theatre. And, of course, Andy's life support was turned off on the 1st of February. So at, at that stage, he was already in a coma and there was no question of me leaving his bedside. Um, and um, the actress, Stella Duffy, performed it. And that Monique's, Monique's aunt, in fact. Monique's aunt. Very so, world. But I, but I felt um, it was really interesting writing that because I think one of the things one does with grief sometimes is one tucks it away. Um, and I, it was only when I started writing that, and obviously it was in difficult circumstances when I was writing it, um, but it just, I, all the grief for Paula came absolutely flooding back. And it and it made it it would have made it very hard to perform it. Having said which, I did I was mad enough in the immediate aftermath of Andy's death 
to think that I was capable of then fulfilling a promise to perform that monologue at a fundraiser for Prima Donna Festival, um, which which I did do, but I can remember almost nothing about it except that I wept all the way through. <laughs> you know, so you do mad things when you're. Well, I, in, I think grief is like a big underground lake because I haven't thought as much about my mother and brother for years as I have since John died. Exactly. And I think if you think of within yourself, all the people you've lost are somehow in this. Well, underground lake, I can't think of any other way to describe it. And you tap into all these different experiences that you've had. Because uh, I've thought a lot about John's daughter, too, who Catherine and I both adored, Sarah, she was called. Such a promising person cut down. You sounded amazing in the book. I mean, we, I, I, I could go through every detail in the book, but there's so much in there. And, and, and Sarah just sounded extraordinary. All, talking back to the book, Anne, um, yeah. I asked you earlier, you yeah. wrote a poem, there's just one poem in the book, which you wrote um, about John's piano, because you had to eventually let the piano go um, and change the room around with the sofa, making it a little bit more yeah. livable. And so you wrote a poem about this, and I wondered if you'd read out, it's on page yeah. 138, oh. you'd like to read the, the piano. But when you say let the piano go, I was happy to let the piano go because it's other daughter had it. Well, I will read it now. The piano. The grand piano has left the house to live with your daughter as you wished. For 30 years, it sat, elegant and polished, in the stunning room you created in our house. In my direct line of vision, from the desk I used many hours a day, you sat there long after you weren't available for practice. The gaping hole in the room echoes the cavernous hole in my heart where you live and still live, but where, like the piano, I can no longer see you. Just to through that. <laughs> it's very beautiful. Thank you. One of the things also that you talk about here is what you call sadmin. That's Catherine's Again, term, yes. Catherine's brilliant use of words. So the sadmin. So it's all, it is extraordinary. We've touched on it earlier, the amount of bureaucratic paperwork that's got to be done and in both cases with John and Andy hadn't signed their wills was that the case? No, John, John had a will but he hadn't signed he had a will dating from the 90s he hadn't changed it and he, he hadn't, hadn't signed, the, signed the one we did in 2018 so we had to use an older one but he did have a will whereas Andy did not and fewer than 50% of all the adults in this country have a will yeah, I, I've got one somewhere. I don't even know where it is. Well, that's serious stuff, actually. Yeah, yes, it's so. serious stuff, yes. So so just taking control of your finances, both Anne and you, Catherine, um, getting access. I mean, one of the things, such a simple thing that you wrote in here is like, don't cancel your, par you know, your partner or the, the beloved, the lovely dead phone straight away because you need it to keep verifying to get into the accounts that you need to change and do things with, and just the complications. Um, I had a, a wonderful cousin who was a specialist lawyer who looked after my mother's estate and made things much easier for my sister and I, but it, it's even so, the bureaucracy and the waiting around and the probate, and it's it's a huge thing in its in itself. So you've got, so I just felt, I guess that's perhaps what death cafes, and that's not necessarily 
your role in life. But there is so much that people who have experienced it can teach others that we do need to talk about. And do, do you see some kind of way that the book will create a community or of or, or a group? It, it, one person that I know very well who lost her husband about three or four years ago said one of the things she loved about the book was that it brought bereavement out of the closet and into the light. And yes. I think if that makes it possible, I've had calls from people I don't know saying, would you tell me about this or that? I think if that opens up pathways for people to talk, both about the practical things, like one person rang me up and said, hello, I'm so-and-so, could you tell me all about probate? Well, frankly, you know, I'm not a lawyer, and I can only tell her my experience of probate. But I think if we can create that openness, that people can talk to each other about both practical things and about the way they feel. Catherine, I just want to ask you to read something out from the book. It's page 207. And you were talked about the love that you and Andy had for each other and your relationship. And you also bring in what he said about you. Um, so just starting on the paragraph that starts, Andy and I built. Have you got that there? Would you, would you read that? Andy and I had built over many years a transformative level of trust. It wasn't about whether we would always behave well towards each other, but about what would happen when we didn't. We had confidence that our relationship would endure. Like swans, we had mated for life. This knowledge freed both of us to pursue ambitions and projects that might have destroyed a, lo a love less robust. He toured and got caught up in the creative process, always a new track on the go, always a fragment of lyric turning over in his mind. My work was similarly absorbing. At the end of every absence of the body or the mind, we returned home, re-engaged, slotted back into our joint life. The thing is, he told the Sunday Times of our relationship, if you get along and you know you can go through some of the rough patches, it really is an enormous adventure. As to name something about me he prizes, he gives an answer that makes my heart swell, and yes, my head too. I think she's dead right, you know, that keeps me very interested. Is there a memory that he cherishes from the early days? So many, he replies. She doesn't do this so much now, but if she got really if she really got hysterical, she'd fall against the wall and then collapse onto the floor laughing so hard, which I find very endearing. You follow that up by saying you can't remember the last time you laughed to the point of collapse. And understandably so. But are you laughing? You still see the, I mean, you, you see humour in things because. Oh, it's God, such yeah. It's, it's just like horribly funny, a lot of what's going on. And like the, the reason, one of the reasons we compiled the list of sort of unfortunate things that people had said to us is also because it is really funny. Like there's a, there is a, there is a black, bleak humour in a lot of what's going on. And, and it's important to, it really is important to recognise it and, and to enjoy it. You know, there's an absurdity to it. There's one quote I want to say about this book, which, by the way, we sell at the Seed Store. We're going to use in our new Seed Book Club. And if anybody, um, of course, the book you can find, but you can certainly find it at uh, our website, which is seed-store.org. And this quote, finally, from Sandy Toxvig, your great friend and co-creator of the Women's Equality Party, a wonderful woman, the most life-affirming book ever written about death. And I love that quote. I love that quote because this is a life-affirming book. You two are life-affirming. Uh, you're amazing women. And 
um, the rest of the mayors that I've met over the years are pretty amazing too. <laughs> thank you, thank you thank for you. being here. I'm sure you will agree with me after listening to this very moving interview that Anne and Catherine have shown how you can embrace life at a time of death, as they say on the cover of their book. So I was thinking about the right kind of seed exercise for this podcast, and I was thinking it would be great to to do something where we bring our memories alive. It could be a memory book. It could be going through old pictures. But I was thinking about how can we create something with nature, so planting a tree, putting new flowers in the garden, a bush, something which will be your permanent, beautiful, natural memory of the person in your life who you've lost and who you are grieving for. So why not do that this week? First of all, do some quiet meditation, connect in with the essence of the person who's no longer in your life. I did it myself and in my case, my mother came up very, very strongly. And then do something where the memories of your life together come up in a beautiful, loving way. As I say, a memory book is always wonderful. I've surrounded my altar with pictures of my mother from various ages. But planting something in your garden or even on your window box, which will always remind you of your loss in a loving, positive, living way would be something I would recommend. Thank you so much for listening. Catherine and Anne's book, Good Grief, is out now in the UK and will be out July in the USA. In fact, we have it here at the Seed Store and it will be featured when we open at the end of May our Seed Cafe and Bookstore, which I'm very excited about. Meanwhile, I'd be very grateful if you'd subscribe to this podcast, rate it and review. And also do make sure to join our Seed Network if you haven't already and join thousands of like-minded women where you can make friends, promote your business and share your stories. Visit seednetwork.com and find out more. Do join me for our next episode in two weeks' time when I will be speaking to Sister Maureen Goodman of the women's-led spiritual organisation Brahma Kamaris. Until then, see you next time on Frankly Speaking with Lynn Franks and Friends. Bye.